Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. If you put questions down there, I will look at them, put them in my queue, and eventually answer them. Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy to be back on our pre-recorded episodes. We did a live show last week, but now we're back to uh, the usual run here. And I've got some great questions that have been sitting in the queue for a while now uh, from my vacation. And these are all um, Patreon questions. These are all questions that came from my Patreon supporters. So I'm um, finally glad to be getting caught up on all of those. Uh, if you did not check out my Sensibly Speaking podcast yesterday, it has to do with post-cult education. And specifically, we talk about higher education. And um, I got to talk about my, my, my program and my education a little bit there and my schooling with educator Pat Hendrickson. And that show is mainly for ex-cult members, but I hope that everybody will give it a, a listen, a, uh, check it out. Uh, because we cover some pretty important information. And uh, with that all being said, of course, also we had a very nice critical conversation show on Friday, which I will also plug here because uh, that one had to do with uh, difficulties uh, in choosing sides. And if it's not obvious, that has everything to do with cults uh, because cults are really a manifestation of taking a side a little too far. <laughs> so uh, that's what the basis of that conversation, that show was about. We had some great callers call in on that. I hope you guys can uh, take the time on Fridays to join us live. We have a great time on the show. And while despite any little technical difficulties that we run into from here and there, I always uh, try to produce the best possible show for you guys. And it would be really great to have more of you on with us live or even calling in to talk to us, me and my, us being me and my wife, Melissa. All right, all of that intro being done, let's get to your questions. Breck, can you talk about the Sea Org's security policies slash procedures around the OT materials? You made reference to it in a previous podcast, and I was curious if you could go into detail about what those might be. All right, Breck, thank you for this question. And um, yeah, this has been a subject uh, that we've discussed a few times on my channel and in interviews and stuff like that. So I know it's not obvious where to find it. Um, the OT materials, the operating Thetan confidential upper level stuff of Scientology, its sacred scriptures, so to speak, um, are highly guarded, highly uh, prized materials in the world of Scientology. They also happen to be all over the internet and are easily accessible within a few seconds by simply Googling OT3, Xenu, Body Thetans, OT5, New Aerodynamics for OTs, OT8 Truth Revealed, any of these things will get you OT materials right in the right on your laptop phone or at home so it's a little funny what i'm about to describe here with all of this lockdown and uh you know fort knox level uh security for something that you can that is literally at your fingertips um but of course the church of scientology will say that the material that's available on the internet is not the actual stuff that it's that the real ot materials are kept very, very secure, uh, not just behind lock and key, but digital frontiers and uh, metal alarm uh, doors and uh, and lockdowns of buildings. There's a lot to it. Um, I'll do my best because I'm, I'm just really operating off memory on this, and I never really was privy to all the details, but enough that I, I have a pretty good idea of what's going on there. And, uh, and of course, the Scientology, you know, likes to brag about this stuff. I think they've even covered some of it in, in some of their events, maybe. But, um, but certainly, we were briefed on it when I was in management uh, because it was a really big deal to secure those OT materials. Um, okay, so these, these again, representing the, um, you know, the, the, the stuff you really pay for in Scientology, the big, the big money ticket, big ticket items are these operating Thetan levels. So first off, 
the OT levels are only available at advanced organizations of Scientology. And there happen to be advanced organizations in Los Angeles, in Sydney, Australia, in Copenhagen, Denmark, um, in uh, Clearwater, Florida. And I, I don't remember if I said Los Angeles or not. Um, and at, um, I think, at St. Hill in England. I believe there's an advanced org there, too. Uh, so that's, and an advanced org is a very specific kind of Scientology organization, which is geared toward delivering only o OT levels. And outside of Clearwater, they only deliver OT levels one through five. That's as far as you can go until you go to Clearwater, where you do OT level six and OT level seven. And you can do all of OT levels one through seven in Clearwater. You can just go there and do them all. Um, but uh, you can only do six and seven in Clearwater. And you can only do the highest OT level, OT level eight, if you go to Scientology's boat, their ship, the Free Winds, which sails around between Aruba, Curacao, and, and Barbados, I think, the ABC islands uh, in the Mediterranean. So, or uh, Caribbean, sorry. So um, that's where you go get them. And of course, on the ship, they don't let anybody on the ship who, you know, they don't want there and, they, and they're able to control access that way. But of course, they're also able to control access once you get into the actual rooms where the OT materials are. The procedures for the security procedures, as I understand it, are very, very similar or the same as what happens at the lower advanced organizations and in Clearwater with the OT materials there and what happens there. Well, you have to be invited onto the OT levels. The first layer of security to even get to the OT levels is, you, is all the hoops you have to jump through and the loyalty tests you have to pass. And uh, by that, I mean you're not just paying money. You do have to pay money. You pay an awful lot of money. You have to get up to the level of clear, and then you have to do the solo auditor course to teach yourself how to use an e-meter on yourself. And then you have to do um, a couple auditing actions and an eligibility security check, which is a pre-printed security check form. It's a confessional that's delivered in Scientology where they put you on an e-meter and they ask you these very sharp and pointed questions about your personal life, your activities, your security, and um, and if you don't pass that, then you're going to have to go talk to the ethics officer about it and get it sorted out so that you can pass it. And they check on things like, are you on the internet? Are you talking to any suppressive people? Are you PTS? Right? All these questions, these, you know, Scientology's loaded language, but they are asking you questions about your loyalty to the church and, and your security. Can you be trusted? And they believe that the e-meter is infallible, and so it will reveal the truth. And so that's the first hoop you have to jump through, is you have to get through what's called OT eligibility. And that security check uh, is extensive, and it does cost you to do it. It's part of the process. And only once you're done with that, and you've passed all the other hoops, and you've passed the eligibility standards, you then receive an invitation to get on to the OT levels. That's how you get there. You don't just walk into an OT course room. You have to be invited. Now, when you're invited, what happens is you have to go report to a window and they give you, uh, you have a, uh, you're going to be a solo auditor. You're going to be auditing yourself on these materials. And so, um, oh, first off though, actually, let's back up a second to the teaching of this. You have to go into the OT course room. And this is where the security is really kind of nuts because the OT course rooms are behind two big locked uh, doors with metal uh, magnetic locks and card access, and you are issued a temporary card in order to be, have temporary access to just to get to back to the hallway to get to the doors where the actual OT course rooms are. You then have to have card access to get into the course room itself. Um, then you get into the course room, and the materials are not out in the open. It's a, it's a it, I've never been in an OT course room. Um, I think I did renovations near an OT course room once when I was on the RPF, but they wouldn't even let us back there to do that kind of renovations work unless you were OT, at least when I was on the RPF. So you go back there and 
you go into the course room and then you have to get the pack, the course pack. It looks like a binder, a three ring binder. Imagine that, uh, but kind of fancied up. And um, there is a security metal strip or some kind of uh, insert in this pack that, and a, and a cable with a plug. And the, and the pack and the cable are plugged into an outlet in the wall, not an electrical outlet, but a, a, a security outlet that registers that the pack is there and it's plugged in. And when you unplug it, as I understand it, you have about 15 seconds to get that pack over to the table where you're going to sit and study it, and you got to plug it in there. And if you don't do that, the alarm goes off, and we'll talk about the alarm in a second. If you try to take that pack out of that room, the alarm goes off. Um, the supervisors, there's a course room supervisor who is watching you the entire time. You are never, ever alone in the course room with the course packs. And this is OT one, two, three, all of them. Any OT materials, this is always, you're never just left alone in a room with them. And so the supervisor is responsible for the security of these materials, obviously. And you're told, you're indoctrinated, right, as to how you're supposed to care for this stuff. And if you mess up and you screw up, they're going to get mad at you. And, and they might even pull your access to the materials if your breach of security is severe enough. Um, when you sit and study the materials, it's just like studying any other material. It's, it's bound, you know, I think it's, I, they, they might even be laminated pages. But they, um, you study the materials under the supervision of the course room supervisor and when you're done, you close the pack, unplug it, get it back in the container, you know, in the in the shelf unit, and get it plugged back in. Um, if uh, and again, any shenanigans going on here uh, with the, with the pack leaving the room, the alarms go off. And what happens when the alarms go off? Uh, everything gets locked down. There are magnetic locks on the outside door, on the course room doors on the stairwell of every floor of the building that the OT materials are in, for example, at the Advanced Org of Los Angeles, where I would work, um, there are four floors. And if the alarm goes off, all of the stairwell doors lock down, the front doors lock down, and if there's any back doors, I think there was a back door, it locks down. You cannot get out of the building short of breaking a window to get out. Because um, all the windows are secured in such a way that you can't just climb out of them. So um, security across the street at, in Los Angeles, this is again where I'm most familiar, but in Clearwater, wherever the security office is, on the other bases, wherever the security office is, they get alerted. Uh, there are Sea Org members who have the job of security. That's, their, that's where they work. And their job, OT material security, is falls under their purview. So they will come running over there to find out what's going on. And, of course, the building is locked down, and they're the only ones who can open it up. So um, the internally, the MAA, the ethics officer, or whoever internally in the advanced org is responsible for this, will go to the front door, make sure nobody's trying to run out of the building with the materials, because you could theoretically... Um, break down those doors or something if you hit them hard enough, maybe, um, but not really. Uh, anyway, they go down to catch whoever the culprit is if somebody's trying to take off with these materials. So you really are going to have an incredibly hard time getting those materials out of the course room, much less getting them all the way out of the building. There is no sticking them in your pack or, you know, pushing them under your, under your shirt or some kind of thing like that. Those course packs are never leaving those rooms. And every course room has its own individual packs and its own individual uh, mag locks and security. And those are, those, are the, those are the things that I know about. There might well be other things that I have long since forgotten or that could, be, have added, could have been added since I left. But when I was there, that was what happened. And there were false alarms, by the way, all the time. I worked at AOLA, the Advanced Oregon Los Angeles, as a registrar and as a tech person for about a year, and um, it was a weekly occurrence. There would sometimes be drills where we would practice this, and the crew don't really need to do anything except be aware of the fact of what's going on. So if the building does go into lockdown and you see some you know, crazy person running down the hallway with an OT pack, you know, of course you would tackle them or something. 
But um, that never happened while I was there, by the way. We never once had a breach of security that I'm aware of. Not that they would have necessarily told all of us, but I, I was not aware of anything. And um, and as far as I know, this procedure, this whole lockdown thing with the magnetic locks and the, the, the cables and all that stuff is how it is every advanced organization around the world. So... Um, so that's my, that's my answer to your question. I hope that gives you some more insight into how seriously Scientology takes these materials. They are absolutely positively, um, never going to just give them out to anybody like they did back in the eighties when they were first leaked. Uh, it's a very funny story. You might want to Google it. A couple of ex Scientologists, ex Sea Org members who still have their uniforms actually walked into Copenhagen and got the materials and uh, or they pretended to be RTC. And they went in there and said they were on mission and they were here to inspect their OT materials and present them right now and hand them over and we're going to take these with us. And they walked right out the front door with them. It was gutsy as hell. It was also something that I believe they were prosecuted for because it's also illegal to do that. Um, but they, they did it. And, uh, and they got they got busted for it, but that let all those materials. So much of what we know about those uh, OT levels is because of that, and other other actions by other people who have since left the church and written things down from memory or got things out uh, into the public domain somehow. And you know, again, like I said, you can find all this stuff, and it has been verified, by the way. With uh, at least I have verified personally with people who have actually done the OT levels. Uh, numerous people that what you find on the internet is pretty much basically what it is. There isn't any kind of real altering or, you know, significant changes between what you'll find on South Park and what you'll find when you actually start OT level three. So there you go, Breck. Hope that helps. Edward Wall. I saw the Sandman season one, episode four called 24 seven and couldn't help thinking of your many discussions on coercive control. Can you please comment? Thanks for asking about this. And actually, you asked me, and I had not yet seen The Sandman, but I have now watched season one. And I never did actually read the comics. I only read a couple. I, I glanced through them uh, back in the day when they first came out. And it really wasn't my style of thing when I was a teenager. Uh, so I was kind of, a, I didn't really get into them. But the show was quite impressive. And if that's representative of what the Sandman comic is, then I'll definitely be reading all of them. I've uh, started looking at getting uh, the collected works of, of, uh, of the Sandman. I am going to give some spoilers here. So if you have not seen this show and you want to, then go ahead and skip ahead. Um, in the video here, I'll put a time mark where you can skip ahead if you don't want to hear this answer because I'm going to talk openly about the show. A um, couple of things I wanted to say on this. Um, it is the Sandman is impressive as a as a show, and this particular episode was the most impressive of the series, in my humble estimation. Uh, it was the most insightful. It was the most uh, hardcore. It was horrific. I mean, it went all the way down the rabbit hole of awful to the most violent uh, and extreme ends that human beings will go. And I thought that it made, and we're talking here about, you know, pretty gross levels of violence. Um, we're talking about, you know, sexual assault. We're talking about uh, killing people, like really grisly deaths. I mean, it goes all the way. It really does not pull its punches. Um, what Fun fact, by the way, for those of you who don't know, Neil Gaiman grew up a Scientologist. And uh, is a second-gen Scientologist. He's no longer a Scientologist. Hasn't been, I believe, since the 1980s. I think he left around that time. And uh, his father, David Gaiman, was the PR representative for the Church of Scientology in the United Kingdom. Uh, for decades, he was, he was, if you all know or remember Tommy Davis, well, Neil Gaiman's dad was basically Tommy Davis for the UK. And uh, he, you know, proudly uh, represented Scientology for many, many years and engaged in all kinds of fair game nonsense against Scientology's critics and enemies. And uh, Neil Gaiman, you know, actually was part of that. And um, then he left. I think he got sick and tired of it, but I don't know any real inside story on that. But it is a fun fact since I'm talking about a work of Neil Gaiman here. 
Neil Gaiman is a pretty insightful guy, and I have enjoyed uh, bits of his fiction. I've read um, Neverwhere and American Gods and a few other uh, of his movies and stories, and I've always found them to be kind of interesting, if a bit odd. There's always this little odd flavor to them, and The Sandman, of course, is no different. Now, that all being said, let's get back to your question. Um, there were two... There were two interesting insights, I suppose, in this in this show that I wanted to comment on here. And for me, the most important one of the show, and one sent, and since it, we're talking about it, I get to to share this with you guys, is from a psychological perspective. Um, I appreciated the the moral of the story more so than I appreciated the coercive control aspects of what was being shown, because that was definitely there, and I'll talk about that in a second. But but the bigger part of the show that I just really was so surprised by and and yet enthusiastic about at the end of all this grisliness is this very interesting message, which is that when you take people's dreams away from them, when you strip people down to to you know their core essential life element, you could say, but you take their dreams and hopes away from them, their ability to create and imagine a better future for themselves, a better future for the world, um, you know, that tomorrow could be better than today. So today is worth getting through no matter how bad it might be. When you strip people of that and make them face the stark reality that nobody really understands or knows anything and really nobody really gets where they're going or what's going to happen tomorrow or the fact that people tell each other little lies and big lies all day every day because that's how we get along in the world. And there really isn't anything wrong with that as long as we're not telling each other destructive lies. And there's a big difference there. There's a big point to be made on that. And I and I, I thought it was made quite well in the show that... That we deceive each other, we deceive ourselves all the time. But why? Why do we do that? Because we are putting there for ourselves some degree of hope, some degree of a dream, an imagination, a forward, a creative idea that tomorrow, like I said, could basically be better than today. Uh, I found that very inspiring, and I found that to be a, a, a quite a beautiful message in the middle of all of this incredible violent ugliness where the show descends straight down into by the end of it. So how does it get there? Well, it gets there because the, the this character has a, it's, it gets there through magic though. And that's why my talk now about coercive control is limited to the degree that the show uses a, an artifact, a magical artifact for control of people and for control of their behavior. Uh, specifically, there's a guy there who is sick and tired of all the lies. Sick and tired of it. Doesn't want anybody lying anymore. And he has this magical amulet that he uses in order to get people to start telling the truth to each other. Nothing but the unadulterated stark truth. Cut out all the lies. Cut out all the middlemen. Cut out all the bullshit. Let's get down to what people really think and how they really feel. And it's quite an interesting thing when you face humanity from the perspective that everybody is evil and everybody is lying and everybody is deceiving each other. And really, that's where we live. It's not true. And that's what's demonstrated in the show, I thought. But there are an awful lot of people in this world. An awful lot of people. And I will say of a religious nature is where this attitude tends to come from. But it does not have to. There's really nothing religious about this concept. But it persists through religion through the concept, let's say, of original sin and interpreting original sin as a mark of the beast where everybody is always evil. They are born evil. They will die evil unless they, you know, accept the grace of God, et cetera, et cetera. So this concept is very, very old. And Neil Gaiman takes it and goes, let's take this concept to the nth degree. Let's run with it all the way to its fully logical conclusion. Where does this go? If you cut out all the deception and the little lies and the mannerisms and the etiquette and the, and the things we do and the way we get along with other people, 
right? And you just start getting everybody saying whatever's on their mind to everybody else, you know, damn the consequences. Well, predictably, you get people very upset with each other. Uh, and you get people to the point where they also lose that hope, right? And that's the, that's the key to our humanity is our hope, our dreams, our hopes and dreams, right? It's what we want to make happen that, that, that makes us good and keeps us good and keeps us together. It, it's what allows community at all is common goals, common purposes, a common ideal. Um, again, you know, you, you start stripping those things away from people and they lose that. And again, everything goes to hell. So, um, there were elements of isolation, manipulation, and control all through the show, because that's what this guy was doing is he was pulling people individually, talking to them one-on-one-on-one and running this magic sort of thing on them or doing it from a distance. He had this little thing and he would just sort of watch and and make them, you know, be be truthful. And, you know, here's the here's another thing I'd like to say about this and not to get too, you know, into relativism uh, here or too deep into the into, you know, kind of weird philosophy or something. But, you know, the a lot of the truths, one of the things that this show also demonstrated that I thought is so well is the the. The temporary nature of our truths, you know, I can be mad at you right now. Give me 10 minutes. I won't be. So which one's true? They both are. And so if I'm stripping all the lies away and confront you with my awful truth of anger and resentment and, you know, anything else I might want to throw your way in the moment... I'm throwing away our future together or I'm affecting our future together in a really negative way by dumping all this crap on you because I temporarily feel a particular way. And that's my truth in that moment. So if I'm going to tell you the truth, then I'm going to give it to you with both barrels. Or I could know maybe this isn't a really good idea. maybe I should just shut the hell up, swallow my anger, think about this for a minute and figure out how I actually want to deal with it so that the relationship isn't ruined, so that we can continue to maintain a constructive relationship, a positive relationship, because that's true too. There's choices that we make every day in how we interact with other people and what we choose to say and not say. And you can control somebody to be completely truthful all the time or completely this all the time or completely that all the time. But there's this weird thing about absolutes. We're really bad at them. <laughs> and, and that's why, you know, the lives of human beings, the, the, the sort of rational and emotional lives of human beings are all about shades of gray and spectrums. And there are no, there are very, very few, I should say, absolute truths that we can cling to and know are always true all the time under every circumstance. And factually, most of the absolute truths that we that we hold on to through religion and ideology and, and various other things are just so much nonsense. There's really no objective truth to them at all. It's just how we want to see the world or how we want to think things are. And there's really nothing more to it than that. But we call it truth and we think about it as truth and we defend it as truth and we kill each other over it over as though it's true. And, you know, that's the that's the course of civilization. So so the so basically what my answer despite the philosophical stuff I'm talking about or the sort of opinion stuff I'm talking about. As far as the coercive control elements that were displayed in the show, they were they were damn near perfect, except for the fact that he was using magic to accomplish his ends. And so all of these people were being uh, unduly influenced and controlled, sometimes from a distance. They weren't even necessarily aware of what was going on or who was doing it, or they thought they were the ones who were doing it. And there's a lot of layers to this because coercive control can, is, can be done in such a deceptive manner, such an underhanded manner, 
that you actually can believe that the thoughts and ideas that are being placed in your head are your own ideas. And that's when it is masterful. That's when it is done most effectively. I don't want to say that's when it's best because this is a really horrible thing to be doing to people. But um, but it is done in the course of the show and demonstrated that uh, while this guy is doing it to everybody in the diner, it's also happening around the entire world. And the whole world ends up, you know, imploding, literally, um, and, and killing each other off. Everybody's like rioting in the streets. It's just, it's just madhouse destruction because of this point of, well, we're all now going to be super honest with each other. It doesn't really matter. There's a point I'd like to make here, which is it's, you know, I've, I've talked here about the uh, point of truth and how, you know, deceptive uh, deception or lies are used. Uh, as long as they're not destructive, you know, you really can use those things to get along in life. And if you think about it the way this guy was thinking about it, your hopes and dreams and you what you tell yourself in the in the day to get yourself along are lies. They're all lies. But here's the thing. They're not always lies. Just because you don't know whether something is going to happen or come off or not doesn't make it a lie that you tell yourself. You know, if you believe in, and what keeps you going is that uh, you're going to be rich one day and then one day you're rich, well, you know, you were not lying to yourself. But at every point along the way where you weren't yet rich, that could have been considered a lie. You see, you see, there, there's a lot of ways of looking at this thing, right? It's a little complicated. Anyway. Um, as far as the isolation manipulation control factor here, it was prevalent all throughout the episode. And it shows where I wanted to go with this is it shows any kind of absolutism, any kind of extremism. This is the natural result of it is, is, is death and destruction for everybody. It's, that's not the state of being that people should be in where they're dealing in absolutes all the time. You know, only Sith deal in absolutes, which itself is an absolute statement, which is hilarious uh, coming from a Jedi because apparently Jedi deal in absolutes too, which was the whole point of Star Wars. <laughs> the Jedi had gone off the rails and they were the bad guys as much as the Sith were. I mean, it was there, you know, anyway. Fun stuff. Uh, running commentary here. I hope that this answer was uh, somewhat useful and informative to you. Um, and I certainly enjoyed the show. I certainly enjoy talking about the show here. And I hope that what I had to say was, uh, was useful to you. There you go. Oscar Q. Zilch. Let's imagine that someone could attempt to use the tone scale as a means of interacting with David Miscavige. What strategies should a person take in dealing with Miscavige's chronic tone level? All right. So we're going to do a little inside Scientology baseball here um, or Scientology inside baseball, whatever. We're going to get into some Scientology terminology and concepts here, which it has to do with this thing called the tone scale. In Scientology, there is um, an emotional, a scale of emotions. Hubbard actually assigned numbers to emotions and he put them all on a graduated scale and said these emotions are bad and these emotions are good and a being can cause his own feelings and emotions anytime he wants because vibrations emotions are just vibrations see they're just the wavelength that the thetan is vibrating on in the moment uh basically and that the body is also part of this process but basically it's the thetan that is experiencing emotions and uh the body plus the thetan the spirit create um kind of can kind of can conflict with one another from time to time or the body can um limit the ability of the thetan to express the full range of emotions that the thetan can experience the scale for a thetan is from 40.0 at the very 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 top which is serenity of beingness all the way down to minus 40 which is called total failure and there's a lot of stops in between those two. But for a human body, for what we can show and express and, and demonstrate emotionally, it's body death, which is at 0, 0.0, up to about exhilaration, which if I uh, remember, let me pull this up here, uh, exhilaration, enthusiasm, sorry, enthusiasm is at 4.0. 
exhilaration is 8.0, and that would be a thetan emotion. The best the body can demonstrate is enthusiasm. Woohoo! Right? Party, party! So that's as, that's as high up as a body can ever show. But a thetan can apparently um, experience these other wavelengths or vibrations and, uh, and lives and responds to things accordingly. Okay, so you have this bigger range for the thetan, small range for the body. But, um, but all these emotions are, are categorized by Hubbard. And below a certain point at, at uh, 2.0 on the scale is where we have uh, antagonism, the, the emotion of antagonism. And anything worse than that is called misemotion or minus emotion. Bad. It's bad stuff. Like it goes from antagonism to, to hostility, to pain, to anger, to hate, which is at 1.4 and resentment, which is at 1.3. Uh, so you can tell this is kind of a band, this sort of red band of the emotional tone scale where people get pretty nasty. And the idea here in this question, of course, is to ask me, well, you asked about Miscavige's chronic tone level. So what I have to describe here or say is that there is a temporary tone level and there is a chronic tone level. This is all L. Ron Hubbard. I am not in any way saying that any of this is true, because it's not. L. Ron Hubbard got this entire topic so wrong. But um, it, of course he did, because this was just another layer of, of the control that Hubbard exerts over people. That was the whole point of the tone scale, was to control people. And Hubbard even taught other Scientologists how to use this emotional tone scale to control other people. And this is where this question comes from. So a chronic tone is the tone that you're mostly in, that you hang around in most of the time. You know, people tend to be, individuals that you know, tend to be mopey or depressed or bored or happy or angry or, you know, where, where Joe or Nancy or Sue, where are they most of the time? That's their chronic tone level, right? If they're pissed off most of the time with the world and stuff like that, chronic tone could be anger. You know, if they are somebody who, like a David Miscavige, runs around and beats on people, is angry with people, resents people, despises people, and that tends to be where Miscavige hangs out, then his chronic tone, we might say, is resentment or hate. And that's where I would plug him on Hubbard's tone scale if I had to. Again, none of this stuff is really how things work in the real world, but there is an interesting thing about emotional manipulation. And uh, with some people, you can mess with them emotionally and they will respond in very interesting ways. Um, you know, this also gets into um, neuro-linguistic programming was a later development of this kind of thing. Like what kind of words, what kind of phrases, what kind of patterns, what kind of actions can I take to subtly, subconsciously manipulate you or control you or get you to do things that you don't even know I'm getting you to do? Well, in Scientology, Hubbard presented this tone scale as a mechanism of control of other people's emotions. He said that if you spot somebody's tone level, whether it's temporary or chronic, you can bring it up by demonstrating to that person a tone that is half a point to a point above where they're at. And that will bring them up the scale. And so interestingly, if we look at this tone scale, for somebody who is stuck, let's say, chronically in anger at 1.5 or hate at 1.4, and that's kind of where I'm pinning Miscavige, then 2.0 would be half a tone above that. 2.5 would be boredom, a full point above resentment and anger. So if I wanted to, as the question asks me here, use the tone scale as a means of interacting with David Miscavige, and what strategies should I take in dealing with his chronic tone, 
then I would try to approach Miscavige either in antagonism or uh, maybe monotony 2.4 or boredom 2.5, but probably going to get more from him if I come at him half a point above at antagonism. And that doesn't mean I'm antagonistic toward him. I could be antagonistic toward other people. Oh, these fucking guys. Oh, this fucking, can you believe this guy? Right? Not necessarily full, have a full rage meltdown, just antagonism, just right? Miscavige would respond to that kind of thing. Maybe. <laughs> On the other end, he might tell you to sit down, shut the fuck up, <laughs> and uh, target you for the RPF, right? I mean, there, who knows what he's going to do? But according to Hubbard, that should actually bring Miscavige up a little bit. That should make him a little bit closer to being more happy, moving in that direction, right? He'll rise to match your antagonism. And then once you've got him kind of antagonistic, not full rage fest, but, you know, a lighter version of that, then you start acting monotonous or bored. Ah, uh, well, yeah, you know, but what are you going to do? I don't know. What can you do? Not much, you know. And according to Hubbard's estimation of things, that boredom is higher than that antagonism. And it should, it should bring Miscavige up to boredom. I guarantee you it won't. <laughs> if you try to be bored around David Miscavige, he'll have your head served on a platter. Right? You can't act that way around him. You can't be casual around him, be chill around him. Not unless you're Tom Cruise or something, you know, I, it's just, it's ridiculous. Um, so, but I wanted to take advantage of this question to answer, you know, give a little bit of some Scientology inside knowledge there. This is the tech of Scientology. This is what they actually teach and kind of show up how, how kind of silly and ridiculous it is. You're supposed to be able to use this tone scale and go around and talk to people at a tone level that is half a tone to a tone above and you're supposed to be able to make people better as a result of this. And I'm sorry, but it's just total nonsense. And there you go. Kevin Zay. I was wondering if you've been keeping up on the lawsuits filed against Alex Jones, stemming from all the lies he spread about Sandy Hook. He was ordered to pay a combined total of $49.2 million towards punitive and compensatory damages. Do you think he can survive this or is he done? What effect will this decision have on other people like him? Kevin, thank you very much for this question. Uh, you know I love talking about Alex Jones. He has been a pet peeve of mine for many, many years because of his vicious, destructive lies. You want to talk about somebody who's telling destructive lies, that's Alex Jones. This is a man who profits to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars because of the lies that he tells. And that's my moral objection to him and why I have a real problem with this guy being given a bullhorn and having a public platform on which to spread those lies. Freedom of speech is a very, 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 very important concept, but it does not include the freedom to just willingly and knowingly lie to people and profit off of those lies. And if you think it does, then you and I have a real moral problem because that is the entire basis of my argument against Alex Jones and people like him is that they are, they are immoral actors, they are untruthful actors, knowing what they are doing. And, you know, the knowing part is really the, the least important part of that because if you're running around like an Alex Jones on a daily basis with a three, four-hour show telling mound after mound, there's piles and piles of lies, I don't care if you believe them or not. Somebody needs to stop you because these are destructive lies and this is what the courts are now finding with him. And this is why juries are awarding tens of millions uh, of uh, dollars of compensatory damages to the victims of Sandy Hook. And this is just the first case. There are at least three more lined up that he's involved in in other states. Alex Jones is in an awful lot of trouble right now. And, of course, he is um, crying crocodile tears. And he has claimed that he is sorry. He's claimed that he knew he, you know, okay, the, the, the people of Sandy Hook... Are the parents of Sandy Hook are not a bunch of liars. They're not crisis actors. This is the basis of the suits. Is Alex Jones is a um, sort of incendiary, fear-mongering content creator. And he has a show where he called out the, the parents of the children who were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. This was the largest to date 
school shooting in the United States. There has not been one worse than Sandy Hook. And Alex Jones, that day and very soon after and repeatedly for a very, very long time, years, made claims that the victims of Sandy Hook were fake. It never happened. The whole thing was a false flag operation. And all those parents were just crisis actors, right? Mothers and fathers of children as young as six years old were being accused of being crisis actors by Alex Jones after they lost their children. And they were stalked and they were harassed by Alex Jones's followers because Alex Jones has a little cult, you see, and his lies and his deceptions have consequences. It's not just freedom of speech when people are using your words to go actually instigate criminal activity against victims, especially this situation. Could you imagine something more awful than losing a child? Well, now you can because Alex Jones is in the world and his followers are in the world and they are delusional. They believe delusional things. I'm not saying they're mentally impaired. I'm not saying they're mentally ill. I'm saying they believe delusional things like victims of, you know, these parents uh, uh, the, of, the, of the children who were victims of Sandy Hook they're, they're crisis actors. Well, I believe that because Alex Jones said it. And I believe it so much, I'm going to follow them. I'm going to stand outside their house. I'm going to call them. I'm going to threaten their lives. And I'm going to make sure they never, ever, ever get to visit the graves of their children because we're going to harass them all the way there and all the way back with our God-given freedom of speech and freedom to assemble. This is an abuse of our system. And our system shouldn't put up with abuses. So, okay. So now that I've had my moment to platform to uh, sort of uh, soapbox on Alex Jones, um, do I think he can survive this or is he done? You know, he'll absolutely survive this. Because he has a cult following. He has a base of people who believe every word he says or almost every word he says. And some of those people have even commented on some of my videos over the years because I've made efforts over the years to debunk Alex Jones, to show up what a fraud and fake he is and a liar. And uh, people take exception to this. Well, some of what he says is true. Yeah, broken clock is right twice a day. That doesn't mean it's not broken. And Alex Jones is a very broken man. So um, unfortunately, though, so are his followers. And so they will keep supporting him. Alex Jones makes... Claimed, apparently, in an article I read while I was uh, doing a little bit of looking up on where he's at these days, he has emails where he claims he makes $800,000 a day selling prepper gear and vitamin supplements and other bullshit to people, very gullible people who actually think that Alex Jones cares about them and actually believe that Alex Jones is their best interests at heart. And he sells this material through his website, and he makes bank on it. Now, he's also engaged in some uh, accounting and legal shenanigans right now to hide his money. It's all, you know, okay, we're going to move it here, and then we're going to move it here. He has three different companies. He's moving the money around. He might have other companies or investments or whatever that he's using to hide this money because he's claiming bankruptcy, even though he is not bankrupt. And he is telling his followers that he's that it's all over. He doesn't have the money. Oh, it's all so bad. It's all a strategy to get them to send him more money. The guy is flush with money. And he has been ordered to pay $45 million. He's hemming and hawing and doing everything he can to avoid that. And he's about to face three other, I believe it's two or three other court cases, where which are probably going to result in a very similar outcome for him. Together... If enforced, I believe that these could bankrupt him and ruin him financially for the rest of his life. I would certainly hope for that outcome. I think I'm pretty clear about the fact that I think this man is a scumbag and he does not deserve to live the life of Riley on the backs of all of his lies and on all the hard-earned money that his followers send him. Right? They work hard for that money. He doesn't. He just has to sit behind a microphone and make shit up all day. And now he's being held accountable for it, and he's hemming and hawing and clawing and screaming as much as he can to try to elicit as much sympathy and as much money from his followers as he can. 
And I believe that given the way the United States works, the way our regulations work, and the way our criminal prosecutions work and don't work, that he'll get away with it. I actually believe that that's unfortunately going to be the case. I would be ecstatic to be proved wrong about this and to see him ruined utterly over this whole thing because that's what he deserves. That Alex Jones has never produced a productive thing in his life. He's just he's he's an L. Ron Hubbard with a microphone, and um and you know what I think about L. Ron Hubbard, and so there you go, Nick. Scientology maintains a museum of sorts in Washington, D.C., in the building where Hubbard lived in the 1950s, and the first administrative offices of the newly formed Church of Scientology were located. I've heard there are other similar but more modest locations in other places where Hubbard has lived over the years. Do we know how many of those there are? Who is maintaining them? I am assuming small crews of Sea Org members. If so, what's their life like? If not, then who and on what terms? Nick, thank you for asking about this. There are a number of these L. Ron Hubbard properties or locations, and they are kind of kept up as museums. And the idea is for Scientologists to be able to go and tour these properties and follow in L. Ron Hubbard's footsteps. There is a uh, there is a, the house that he wrote Dianetics in in Bayhead, New Jersey. I believe it was actually owned by... Um, Jack, uh, John Campbell, the uh, editor of Astounding Magazine, I believe he was the one who actually owned it, but Hubbard stayed there in uh, 1949, 1950, and wrote Dianetics there. Uh, then there was the house in Phoenix, Camelback. Uh, that is where Scientology actually started in 1953, and L. Ron Hubbard set up shop there, and they have a house, they have that house, and they have restored it. And, uh, and they give tours there. In fact, I called them before I, the show here, and I talked to the person who was there, and she made it clear that, unfortunately, you have to be a Scientologist in order to even go on the property or take part in the tour. So they direct you to the local Church of Scientology. She tried to direct me to the Phoenix Church uh, because I wasn't going to be able to take the tour and go to the house there. I found that fascinating. It is Scientologists only. That's not written anywhere in any of their promo materials that I could find. And interestingly, they are still getting Google reviews as of a couple weeks ago from people who tour the houses. And they are ecstatically over the top successes about how happy they were to go visit L. Ron Hubbard, the genius uh, philosopher, uh, researcher, extraordinary man of, uh, of many talents. Uh, they, they're just gushing reviews. It's so funny. They're so obviously a bunch of Scientologists writing these reviews. Uh, but that's what you find in Bayhead, New Jersey, in Phoenix, Arizona. There's also a house in South Africa. I didn't try looking them up on the web, but there is one down there. Uh, those are the ones I'm aware of and the Washington, D.C. one. There might be others that are escaping my memory right now, but those are the four I'm aware of. And they are all fully restored. And, and by restored, we mean that they uh, built up the house to look exactly like it was when Hubbard was there. They've recreated the old-style furniture, the wall hangings, the, the equipment that's there is L. Ron Hubbard stuff or facsimiles or recreations of it, uh, all the way down to the smallest detail based on the photos and information they had from L. Ron Hubbard and his time, uh, you know, jaunting around the world back in the day. So that's what's there. That's what I know about them. And um, and you're not going to be able to go get a tour uh, because you got to be a Scientologist to do that. There you go. Oh, sorry. There one other thing I can say in terms of answering your question, Nick, is that it is Sea Org members who are maintaining them. Unless that's changed and they're hiring people, and I cannot even. I, I, I there's no way that's true. Given that only Scientologists are being allowed to tour the property, there is zero percent chance that non-Scientologists are running the property. So they would, what they would do is generally send a Sea Org couple out to the property and they would just permanently assign there to keep the place up, keep it clean, do the tours, promote the tours, and uh, generally kind of create their own job at that location. I have no idea what the income is there or what, how they make money, how they get money, what their budgeting is. I've, I was never anywhere near any of that. Uh, it was all run out of the Commodore's Messenger org, and that was an org that was senior to me. So I was never privy to any of that information. But you can always call and ask them. There you go. 
All right, let's do some flash answers. Rihanna Sawyer. How did leaving Scientology impact your general sense of spirit? Are you an agnostic or atheist now? Thanks for asking, Rihanna. I have done um, answers on this before much longer. That's why I'm just making this one a flash answer. Um, I am an agnostic, uh, agnostic atheist, if you insist. And uh, only in that I do not believe in a creator or God or gods in any way like anybody else I've ever heard or read about in organized religion on earth. Um, I do not, I cannot in any way take seriously the the Christian narrative or the Islamic narrative or the Jewish narrative. I, I just, the Abrahamic religions make no sense to me. And so, um, uh, so I don't follow any of that. I have spiritual hopes and desires and dreams, but I do not have uh, the idea that my hopes and dreams are real. They are hopes and dreams. And I'd love for them to be real. Uh, I've thought about the question of God and the existence and, of, and, and, and creation and all that stuff, uh, just like everybody else has. And I've given it, um, you know, uh, I've got open-ended, open-minded uh, thoughts about all of it because nobody knows. I know I don't know. And that's why I kind of hang my hat on agnosticism. Brendan Ambrose. I know Scientology is dwindling, but as Aaron Smith-Levin has shown, there are people that have joined recently and are not second generation. What do you think the total number of people that are coming in and taking at least a few courses for the first time is? Even if they uh, attrit quickly, that number would be interesting to hear. If there are 125 orgs, just one person per month would mean there are well over 1,000. Would love your ballpark estimate. Brendan, thank you for your question. Now, obviously, I am not privy to any of Scientology's statistics at this time, but we are told that they are downtrending and have been going down ever since 1995, 1996, rather, when David Miscavige implemented Golden Age of Tech, and he has been driving people out of Scientology ever since. That attrition rate is, uh, it, you know, is what it is. We know that Scientology has been shrinking, not growing. In terms of first starts, which is what you're asking about, first time starts of services, that's a statistic in Scientology, it's called first starts, there are many, many organizations that go weeks or even months without even one first start. So it's, it should not be assumed that every organization can get at least one new first start every week or even month because they don't. I know that for an absolute fact. And um, so if I were to right now within the realm of, of what I know to be possible and what I think is possible in Scientology, I would be very surprised if they had more than, um, I'll say, 100 total new people starting services every month internationally. First time, right? Now, this is not to say that that's how many people are doing services. I'm talking about first time start services. And most of those first starts do not progress beyond their first service. They come in, they get started on a course, they get started on some auditing, and they go, you know what, this is for the birds, and they take off. Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's a little hard to say, obviously, without you know any transparency from Scientology or any access to their statistics. So this is my best, you know, guess here, and uh, that's what I will, that's what I'll throw out to you. I hope that's useful somehow. Heidi Robinson, why do many Scientologists choose to continue to celebrate the late L. Ron Hubbard's birthday? He's been dead for decades now. Why do people celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday? <laughs> we made it a national holiday. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. I mean, we take famous figures in history and we celebrate their birthdays all the time. L. Ron Hubbard is infamous in history, not really famous, but among Scientologists, he sure is. And they take advantage of this on March 13th every year. They hold an, a birthday event where they talk about and glorify L. Ron Hubbard and read from his hagiography, his approved, authorized religious biography, not reality, and they glorify him. And uh, they need to do this because Scientology is, at the end of the day, a bit of a cult of personality. It is focused around L. Ron Hubbard as a godlike figure. And he is not individually worshipped, but he is uh, uh, grandly admired 
and all but reverently worshipped by Scientologists. And that image has got to be maintained in order for Scientologists to continue to buy what he's selling. And Miscavige simply puts himself in a position where he is forwarding or echoing L. Ron Hubbard. And as long as he can continue to successfully do that, he can have his own cult of personality built up in Scientology. But it all focuses around the written and spoken works of Hubbard. So Hubbard must maintain an exalted position at all times. And that's why they keep celebrating his birthday. All right. So that was our show for this week. Uh, I'm glad to be back. Thank you very much for all these questions. I hope that my answers were somewhat interesting, entertaining, and informative. And I hope that if you are enjoying my channel, I've stayed all the way through to the end of the show here, that you will consider supporting me through Patreon or maybe uh, show some love to the channel through PayPal or Venmo. There are links to all of this in the uh, description section to this video below. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.